Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It really was the Wild West when people just didn't realise how bad this was going to go. It made me realise how fragile those structures that we thought were there were, were really pretty paper thin. Something like this will happen again. There will be another black swan event. What we learn out of this will be fundamental. We all have talked about using immunity as a possible mechanism to prevent this virus from getting further. So if we get our immunity up to this virus, you know, let as many people get it, we protect the vulnerable people, and then we have a level of herd immunity in the community, and then we're all fine. But we've realised that this virus doesn't play that way. We still don't know a lot about it. America says the Pacific's very important and it's really critical and through New China we've got to pivot, blah, blah, blah. We haven't seen that level of engagement that we might have thought to have seen even two years ago. If you look at the US, for example, they have all the possible factors to be able to control this and do something like what we've done in Australia, but their priorities are completely different. And I know the term's almost a bit hackneyed, but we have to build that new normal. The economy needs to get going again. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. And those comments that you just heard were made by Glenn Keyes, the founder and executive chairman of Aspen Medical, and Dr Geetha Isaac-Toa, Aspen Medical's group medical director. And in this episode, we're going to continue our focus on the role that private industry plays in national security. We'll be talking to Glenn and Dr Geether about how Australia has responded to the coronavirus pandemic, the role Australia has to play in regional health security, and their experience on both sides of the public-private partnership dynamic. Founded by Glenn in 2003, Aspen Medical is an Australian-owned global provider of healthcare solutions with clients including government uh, with a focus on defence, humanitarian work, uh, as well as private sectors such as mining and engineering. Many Australian listeners will also recognise Aspen from the leading role that they've played for the Australian government in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic in Australia, and we'll have more on that in this episode. Aspen also operates internationally. It has a medical team of over 3,000 and operates across Australasia, the Pacific Rim, the Middle East, Africa, USA and the UK. It was one of the lead organisations in responding to the recent Ebola outbreaks in Africa and has supported the Australian Defence Force deployments throughout the region over the years. 
Prior to founding Aspen, Glenn had a quite a distinguished career in the Australian Defence Forces. His service saw him undertake a range of tasks from training to test flying and engineering to logistics supports for Army aircraft. Glenn sits on a number of boards, including the National Disability Insurance Agency, the University of Canberra Council and Project Independence. Project Independence is quite interesting. It's actually a not-for-profit that Glenn founded in 2012 to provide home ownership to people with an intellectual disability. Dr. Geitha is an experienced physician with general medical and public health experience, including humanitarian aid and disaster management. She has been involved in communicable disease control and health protection, including surveillance, infection control, immunisation, tropical health, environmental health and food safety. Geitha regularly briefs ministers and department heads and has experience in setting up databases for information management, surveillance, disease control, rapid evaluation and health systems planning. Let's speak to Dr. Geither and Glenn right now. G'day, Glenn. G'day, Dr. Geither. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the invite. So I, I want to drill into the role that Aspen plays in your experience of public-private partnerships in health security a little bit later in the episode. But in order to frame things a little bit, where does Aspen Medical fit in the public health and the wider national security landscape. Glenn, can I start with you? Sure. So we see ourselves as supporting and supplementing, but not supplanting those health services that already exist, be they within public health or within the broader departments like defence or immigration or border force. So our job is really if they need to scale up, they need additional services, perhaps there are long-term commitments that they don't want to be caught up in. So, for example, we're in the Solomons for almost 15 years and Timor for a decade. Those are not where you want to see defence resources committed to. So that ability to come in and help And then, of course, finally, in the area around humanitarian and disaster response, uh, typically we can respond really quickly and, and that ability to be able to surge in support of Australian government activities really do contribute to that national security image. So I'd just add to what Glenn has said, you know, we are there to provide support, structural support, uh, personnel support. We come with a lot of experience in terms of, you know, public health, which could be preventive, which could be in the primary healthcare space. It could be in the acute care space, which we've done a lot of. I think our motto of, you know, wherever we're needed really says what we can do. And it's based on experience and a lot of skill within the organisation. I have a question from my pod co-host, Catherine Manstead from the National Security College. Whilst you're an Australian-owned and operated company, you also operate internationally. What does national security mean to you as a company and as an operator within that company? And how do you factor it into your mission and operating plans? Look, I think it's a great question. Um, I think that people are now very clearly focused on health security because of COVID. But if you want to correlate it to anything, I think 9-11 and the subsequent focus on physical security to me has a lot of analogies. And so we can be providing national security regardless of where we're located. So while we're an Australian and veterans-owned company, um, we think we contribute quite significantly to uh, uh, the national effort, regardless of whether it's supporting aged care, whether it's providing PPE or whether it's providing facilities. But if I look overseas in the middle 
Middle East. Uh, we've provided over 2,000 clinical staff in support of COVID facilities um, in the Middle East. We've been uh, critical to the development and the delivery of ICU training in those countries. In Fiji, we did all of the public health messaging for COVID. And in Papua New Guinea, we've been providing critical primary care services and PPE. All of those examples show that no matter where we are, we're contributing to the national health security of that country. And I think that goes to our mission, which is we're there to help wherever we're needed. Yeah, I'd look at it from the point of view of also how our teams and our staff operate in terms of um, supporting and enhancing national security. So when our teams go out on projects, whether it be international, national, you know, state and territory, um, they're always looking at what are the potential risks to themselves, to the people that they're going to be supporting, like aged care facilities. So uh, looking very clearly at, you know, infection, for example, infection prevention control. That is really, really important both for who we're going to support as well as from the point of view of our staff. So being prepared uh, assessing the risks, what it actually means in terms of broader health security and um, how can they prevent it. So even when we travel travelled internationally, it, it's really important to prepare our teams to look at what are you going into? Who could, how are you at risk? Who could you be putting at risk? What What is the risk that you're going to bring back into the country? So think about all those, prepare, have strategies in place, and that way we actually are contributing to improving national health security. I think there's another element I'd just like to add is that um, people often talk about uh, national security or health security without addressing, I think, a critical part of it, which is national health resilience. And I think in those areas that we go, regardless of whether they're remote communities where, you know, we've set up over 150 respiratory clinics around Australia, one of the key activities for every team, wherever they go, is to say, how can we engage locals in what we're doing? How can we engage the local tradesmen, the local health professionals, the local medical service, the local health logistics provider? Because not only are we obviously inputting into that economy, but we are now drawing them into that health resilience picture and they become part of that solution. So the next time something happens, they can go, oh, I've done this. I've been there. I saw how we engaged. I think the danger sometimes if you come in with a white knight attitude of, you know, settle back, I'll look after you here, you're not actually creating resilience. You might be helping answer a problem, but you're not helping the future. And we do that regardless of whether, you know, it's a remote Indigenous community or it's a village in Fiji. So there is one overarching element of all of the discussions when we're having when we're talking about health security today, and that is the coronavirus pandemic that we're all dealing with. Has it been a great surprise to you that the pandemic has impacted the world and some countries in particular so heavily, or is this what you'd expect from this kind of virus? I think there's two answers to that, one by the non-clinician and one by the clinician. So the non-clinician answer was, uh, 
I, I certainly didn't expect anything to be of this magnitude for this long. I do remember being at Parliament House and hearing Bill Gates speak uh, when he was here quite a number of years ago. And, and his big theme that he addressed several times during his talk was his gravest concern was a pandemic and how we would respond in the amount of money being spent or the lack of money being spent on research for vaccines, but also preparation for pandemics. So I remember remember standing around in January and we were getting a lot of work already, but we were planning to say this will be done by June and the new financial year will be back to normal and will look like this. And we thought this would peak and we would get it under control. Everyone looked at the Spanish flu pictures and went, yes, first wave, think we're smarter than a second wave. We'll know how to manage that. And so I don't expect, I did not expect it to be so big. I think the thing that's been fascinating when you talk about some countries that have been impacted heavily is that there are different levers to pull. So for the first time in the world, we've got hundreds of experiments all going on at the same time, some economic, some business related, uh, some health related, uh, some, some diplomatic related, and they're all pulling different levers and how each country has responded. And there's a million PhDs in this, but great lessons for us to learn to say, was it good to be able to lock down immediately? Should we have done more in distributing PPE? What about training? What about keeping businesses alive? So I think the analysis of those experiments and then contextualizing them is going to be really critical because something like this will happen again. There will be another black swan event. What we learn out of this will be fundamental. Now, I'm keen to get your thoughts on this as well, Dr. Geither, but I'd also like your thoughts, if you're willing to give them, on the Swedish approach. This is this has been a huge point of discussion. And we're talking about the different experiments that are are all happening around the world simultaneously. Well, one of the most uh, well-discussed experiments is the Swedish approach. Do you have any thoughts on how this pandemic has uh, impacted the world and have there been any surprises in how we've responded and how we've been impacted? Okay, so I'll start off with the first bit and then go into the Swedish experience. Um, look, I'm, as a clinician and particularly as a public health specialist, not surprised at all that it's affected different parts of the world in different ways. And as Glenn said, there are different reasons for it. But if you look at it from a public health perspective, the major things that influence population health, you know, of, of a country, of a community, of um, a, a, whether it be developed or a developing country, are simple things like the population numbers, the socioeconomic status, the capacity of the country to be a, to respond to an emergency, and what their priorities are. Um, I think so, I think the priorities bit has been one of the things that we've seen really come out most in some of the yeah, most developed countries, countries as well. Like if you look at the US, for example, they have all the possible factors to be able to control this and and do something like what we've done in Australia. But their priorities are completely different. Their thinking base is completely different. So how they respond to it is, is quite different. So from a public health perspective, I'm not surprised at all that it's, it's, it's quite different. Um, in relation to the Swedish experience, I think when they did what they did, they did it not knowing much about the virus. We all have talked about using immunity as a possible mechanism to prevent this virus from getting further. So if we get our immunity up to this virus, you know, let 
as many people get it, we protect the vulnerable people. And then we have a level of herd immunity in the community and then we're all fine. And the UK in some ways did that as well, you know, initially. But we've realised that this virus doesn't play that way. We still don't know a lot about it. We still don't know the long-term consequences about it. You know, we're starting to see other sort of symptoms, other organ involvement. So I think now people with the second wave have realised that the only way to really do something about this is to control at this point in time, you know, prevent and control and then think about how we're actually going to, you know, develop a cure or where we're going to go forward. One of the things I think that's also been an issue with different countries responding differently is... uh, Bottom line is this is a pandemic. It's not just an epidemic like, say, when we had Ebola or a few other things within certain areas, within certain countries, with certain practices. And this may be a bit controversial, but we really need to think about this globally. You know, what are our priorities? How do we work better as countries? And that is really important for national health security, international health security. What lessons do we take out of this so that we work better for overall health security is, I think, a question that's been playing on my mind. Why have we reached this stage when we know it's a pandemic, we've planned for it? How do we actually move forward? A proper global approach. Well, that's one of the things that we discuss a lot within the national security community. The coronavirus pandemic has really exacerbated some of the differences and tensions between countries. We see it in the US-China relationship, and it's also built in competition between some of the um, political systems around the world and the argument about which political system has handled it better and so on. There's also been mask diplomacy, and there's been mask coercion between countries. So unfortunately, rather than highlighting how there can be global cooperation against a shared challenge and a shared threat, there's actually been a lot of uh, disintegration in terms of how we deal with it. So we we can only hope that we learn lessons from that in the future. And I think the initial question you asked about Aspen, for us it's about supporting a response. It doesn't matter which country it is in or where it is in and, and it is about enhancing that health security bottom line. So it needs to be a coordinated approach. Yeah, And I, and I think this is where the challenge is going to be, you know, Globalization had been growing and growing, interconnectedness, uh, the, the slow ascendancy of China, which has only been accelerated during this period, the, the withdrawing of an American influence as that's come on. And even though America says the Pacific's very important and it's really critical, it's very near China, we've got to pivot, blah, blah, blah. We haven't seen that level of engagement that we might have thought to have seen even two years ago from America. And, um, you know, I was at a talk at the press club and Andrew Liveris was referring to global reversal. And so that reversal of globalisation, what does that mean for us? Well, Rory Metcalf talks about microlateralism. So how do we how do we start saying, okay, well, if, if we're not going to be friends with everybody, if the world's not going to coordinate a full effort, then maybe what we've got to do is is create those bubbles, and we we work out is it going to be 
um, Australia, New Zealand, the Pacific, Indonesia, Japan, where do we go? Do we pick some friends and slowly grow that out? Do we have overlapping ones? This is a health bubble. Here's an economic bubble. Here's a diplomatic bubble. Here's a defence bubble. And we grow that. But I think a lot of the I want to say the wrong words, crutches, but a lot of those crutches that we've relied on, the standards, they're gone Mm -hmm. and they've disappeared so quickly. And, uh, you know, you talked about PPE, but the stories that we're aware of, of aircraft being stopped in the airfields while one nation took PPE off that aircraft, put it on their own aircraft. and Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, that was happening at the height of the PPE wars, if you like. I, I, I'm aware that you probably can't go into too many specifics, but were these partner countries taking them off each other or was this, was this interlaced with some of the geopolitical competition that we see these days? No, no, these are, these are countries that would have very, very typically worked very, very closely together that decided that that company that made that even in a different country, that belonged to them. So they were going to stop that aircraft, take it and take it on their own. And, and uh, you know, I can tell you the stories we had uh, sourcing PPE, it was like the Wild West. We had one story of a, we had paid for PPE at a factory. We had our guy in the factory and he rang and he said, I've got three people all from the same country, two from separate states and one from a government body. And they're all outbidding themselves trying to buy our PPE from the manufacturer who said, no, 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 Aspen Medical's already paid, and they kept upping the rate. Wow. And and so that sort of, it really was the Wild West when it was, when people just didn't realise how bad this was going to go. I think it you know, made me realise how fragile those structures that we thought were there were, the were really pretty paper thin. So you're talking about some of those relationships and the structures. They're the international global supply lines. And I'm aware that you've just recently opened a production plant in Brisbane to make uh, elements of PPE. What kind of an impact do you think that this experience under the coronavirus pandemic is going to have in changing sovereign capabilities in the medical space, whether that's making uh, medicines, pharmaceuticals, as well as some of the PPE and things like that? Are we going to see a, a significant shift in the way that countries look at sourcing these kind of products and materials that we can't do without? So I think what we're going to do is we're going to be far more discerning in supply chain. We're going to sit down and we're going to look, you know, we've considered health logistics was a bit of a boring dead-end career and that'd be over there and we'll buy it somewhere in the world and ship it. Everybody now is going to run all the way down, all the way down the health logistics supply chain and work out how it feeds into economic development, manufacturing, employment, education. We're going to see those threads. And so, for example, you're right, we've started to make masks. But if you want melt-blown, which is what you need to make the mask, be it an N95 or a three-ply, well, are we going to get that in Australia too? So then you have to work out, do you have enough melt blown to be able to make it in Australia to get it? Because no use having a mass factory and no raw material. And then to make melt blown, which is an expensive and complicated process, then you need the polymers to be able to do it that have been done. So there are now those supply chains which did not exist in Australia in January are now all the way back to the original. 
but they were not there before. Mm. And I think what we'll do is we'll sit down there and we'll discern, okay, are we able to make enough glass vials or plastic vials to be able to do tests or vaccines or deliver it? Do we have those necessary uh, supply chain components and production components? We've never thought at that level, quite honestly, since the Second World War. I mean, that's the whole reason there's a... um, a cork farm on the outskirts of Canberra. That was made because they didn't think we were going to be able to get cork to be able to make seals for engines uh, to be able to put seals in our planes and our trucks. So they grew a cork factory. I thought it was for sh- uh, sparkling wine. I, I was going down that path as well. <laughs> that was that was the secondary purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but seriously, it was around how else are you going to be able to make seals for engines? So they deliberately grew cork trees so that they would be able to supply that element, that one single element of a, of a supply chain. That's where we're going to have to get to. And that goes for everything in the health field. So because we're such a small country, we rely on, for want of a better word, getting the incre- ingredients from overseas um, and and then we can put it together over here. So even with the vaccines, for example, even though we're having trials over here, we're still relying on, you know, bigger groups and bigger countries and, and we get it in and supply. Um but ventilators was the other thing, you know, the different parts that are needed for different types of ventilators. We don't necessarily keep within Australia all the time. We import it. And then if you're not able to bring it in, how are you going to support it? But being such a small population and a smaller economy, um, do we actually have the capacity to develop those kind of things, um, is it is it useful in the long run if we become global again? You know, so those are the kind of things that I think are going to influence whether we do everything locally or we just wait to see whether borders open and we continue as we did before. It's interesting. We're we're talking about. A real shift in the way that we see manufacturing. Manufacturing is usually based on efficiency um, and economies of scale and countries doing what they are good at, what they can do at a cheaper rate. We're, We're talking about shifting the economic rationale for why you manufacture and why you produce things. We're doing it now because of a necessity, not because we can make profit from it. However, if you flip what you're saying... There are many other countries out there that are much smaller that don't have the capabilities that we have. Is there any opportunity for Australia to become a manufacturer for the region or for any of these other countries that can't build their own sovereign capability themselves? Look, and I think that's a great question, and I think this goes to the microlateralism that we were discussing before. But I also think we shouldn't be just sitting there going, well, we'll manufacture product X, and we'll, through our largesse, dispense it into countries in the Pacific. I think we should bring us all to the table. I think we also need to challenge ourselves. Factory doesn't need to be a factory. Factory might be a whole range of 3D printers. So you might have a a series of ventilators and, as Geetha was saying before, need a whole pile of consumables that are going to be able to suit uh, children or or different, uh, different patients. So why have those in stock? Why have all of that? Maybe we're using far more intelligent production methodologies than we've used and maybe we can create a relationship where we do say, okay, this this collective now will be country X has got an agreement with us, they're going to provide this, we'll provide that to them, they're doing here. And and maybe we've got to re-establish globalism one supply chain at a time, one set of national relationships at a time. It's harder, but it's going to be so much more resilient. 
And the thing that's going to be important with that is, you know, every country has different licensing, different regulations. So we really have to work together to be able to have some sort of a standard that's acceptable and fits. So there are challenges in it, but realistically for future stability, particularly with smaller economies or poorer economies, that's a good way to move forward. Does Australia have a role to play in providing regional health security or at least leading in regional health security? So I think we absolutely do. Um, And I think we've known this for some time. We established a uh, a regional health security uh, uh, organisation quite a number of years ago, uh, jointly with the WHO. Um, So I think we saw that that's a critical thing. We live in a neighbourhood that needs a lot of support. You know, you can't be expecting a lot of the Pacific nations to have everything they need. But I also think we need to do it in a way that's far more collaborative. Australia is a great middle power. We've got there not because we've got the might and weight of America or the history of of uh, Europe behind it. We've got there because, quite honestly, we do well without a lot. We're able to make a lot out of a little. And we get out and we get about with people. So let's use that to our advantage. Let's take that middle power at a time when people are being asked to choose, are you going to align with China, are you going to align with the US, are you doing something with Europe? We can, I think, as a middle power, help set up a broader relationship that says, you know what, we can actually together come up with a relationship that's a benefit. And I think Geetha's point's really valid. You know, we have had this sort of slowly drifting apart of a lot of standards, be they health standards, be they education standards, be they manufacturing, be they freight, biosecurity, all sorts of stuff. Maybe's the time now to go, you know what, maybe Tuvalu shouldn't have a separate biosecurity standard. Maybe we should find a way to work collaboratively, bring that in, learn some stuff from others. I'm not saying Australia's got the best plans. Let's bring those in together and start to build a middle power model that becomes regionally based, not just nationally based. Dr. Geetha, you've had experience in, in providing health solutions for remote communities. Where can you see some of the difficulties would be in having some kind of universal standard led by Australia to provide health security in the region? Infrastructure is, I think, one of the things that I've always come across, even in Australia. So if, if for example, we were considering telehealth as one of the ways of delivering a health service because there was um, a lack of a specialist or a particular service support. Um, in Australia, you know, to get, get telehealth out to some remote areas is really difficult because we don't have proper internet connection or the accessibility for a telehealth service. So if we could really do that for for the consortium and the bubble that we were we were talking about, you know, so getting an equal access of the internet through the countries, telehealth would be a really good way of doing it. So I think to look at your question in a different way, one of the challenges is going to be picking up on all the issues that are going to stop us from being able to do that, the commonalities, and maybe prioritising them and seeing what is the best way to get the best to everybody out there. So coming up to the table, working out what outcomes we need and then working out what are the challenges to achieve those outcomes 
and then moving forward with where our strengths are in each of those countries and coming up with a plan for that. While we're on regional differences and some of the work that Australia has done, Aspen was one of the leading edges in the response to the recent Ebola outbreak in in Africa. Um, What are some of the differences in the way that the world responded to the threat of the Ebola outbreak and the way it's responded to the coronavirus outbreak? Well, I think uh, for the Ebola outbreak, it, it was dreadfully devastating for the countries that it impacted in, and there was some leakage really out of Africa. There was a little bit into America and Europe, etc. But, but in general, the vast majority of the world had no visibility due to Ebola. And even though it was a huge thing for us, and we had we had over a thousand staff working across seven sites in two countries in Africa for the US, Australia and the UK, there were still people I would talk to about Ebola and they'd go, what's that? Hadn't heard of it. Didn't know. Um, and I think part of the problem we get is that uh, because it doesn't have a direct impact on every country, they don't see it. And I think you can tell that if you look at funding. So, for example, uh, in it took 30 years and about $175 million to develop a vaccine for Ebola. Uh, by May, the European countries had contributed $8 billion to, uh, to develop a vaccine for uh, COVID-19, America $9 billion on its own um, as compared to $175 million over 30 years. But then to put it in context of everything else, uh, the world spends $2 billion a year US researching hair loss. You know, so we, we, we don't understand the impacts of these things until it's right in our backyard and then suddenly it's the most important thing in the world. We were very uh, fortunate that we worked very closely with the WHO and uh, Aspen Medical was accredited as an emergency medical team by the WHO for trauma and outbreak and infectious disease because of that work with Ebola and we'd done other work with cholera and TB. What it meant was we were the only commercial organisation in the world accredited by the WHO when COVID hit. And and that placed us, I think, in a very unique position, able to do an enormous amount of good in a very short period of time. From a clinical point of view, and I think in general, in life, if something has a bigger consequence or a huge consequence, you know, the consequences of getting Ebola could be die. You could, the fatality rate was um, quite high. People tend to pay more attention. And this was really interesting with COVID-19, you know, because in November, December, we were starting to see cases, but nobody really thought much of it because, oh, this is just another flu and we'll get the flu, we'll get better, and we'll we'll move on. So even, you know, even the WHO took until March to d- declare it to be a pandemic. So I think it's related to what the consequences are as well. I, I think it's a fact of life. Um, so with, with COVID-19, I think it just took a little while for people to realise that this is not just about you know, having a flu, it's affecting so much else. It's affecting economy, the way we live, the way the future is going to look. So I, I need to wrap up this part of the conversation before we move on to the issue of public-private partnerships. 
But I know that there's a couple of burning questions that our audience are really going to want to hear. And the first one we've started to touch on, you've started talking about how society may look a little bit different after this experience that we may be a little bit more conscious about personal hygiene and so on. But how is the experience of COVID-19 going to change the way we look at health security? We've already started to see quite a dramatic change, even in our client base. If you'd asked me nine months ago, would we be supporting the entertainment industry? We could not have imagined that we would. But uh, we've been engaged by Tennis Australia to assist them with all of the lead-in events in the Australian Open. Uh, we're working with tour operators. We're working with venue operators. We're doing contact tracing, not by phoning people, but with technology that we've rolled out that didn't exist six months ago. So I think what we're starting to identify is, right, we've been through this period. Now we have to build, and I know the term's almost a bit hackneyed, but we have to build that new normal. I think it's really critical. The economy needs to get going again. So we need to start to be able to turn up the heat on all these things. And I use the analogy of like a big cooktop, a gas cooktop, right? We've turned it all down to one. We've got to start turning these up again. And if we get a bit of an outbreak, we'll turn that one down, keep the others going. But we've got to find a way to start to get venues open, get people going. And if we've got to come up with different protocols and processes, that's what we've been doing. And that's where we're now starting to see a lot of customers focus. But from a health security point of view, if we want to start getting business travellers in, if we want to start getting tourists in, seasonal workers in, getting people overseas, we're going to have to come up with methodologies that relate around health declarations, temperature checks, contact tracing, uh, COVID testing, really rapid COVID testing, management of who we are and where we're going, because we cannot live like this for years into the future. We've got to make this work and we need to do it now. And I do think Australia's in a very unique position to do that. I think we're in a great place. We're, we're an island nation. We're able to manage our borders very well. Um, we've got you know, regardless, if you look, the vast majority of people are very compliant and understanding what has to be done. We've got a great, well-educated population who can understand the science of what's required. And we've got economic drivers that say, right, we can be a major leader in this area. So we're starting to have those discussions. And I think it's critical because I don't believe this is going to be going away anytime in the near future. To tell you the truth, I actually think that when this starts coming down for whatever reason, whether it be a vaccine or whether we've plateaued over the world. People have short-lived memories. You know, if you think about all the flus gone by, if you think about everything else, we're going to go back to where we're comfortable, what we're used to, which is travelling, going out, partying, you know, and just living life to the fullest. I think there's a number of people that are doing that without the pandemic even being passed. Without the pandemic, yeah. So... This is a, I think, chance at this point in time to do all the things that we can potentially to do to enhance global security. Things like you know having um, bubbles and uh, uh, and partnerships and consortiums to uh, while it's fresh in our mind and working with the different groups as well. So, for example, you know we talk we're going to talk about. 
uh, public-private partnerships. There are so many players in this space in terms of health security. You know, we were just talking about the possibility of defence, you know, being part of health security. They're the NGOs. There is um, the health sector. We really need to use these to start planning for future health security. So how we do that is going to be the challenge. Yeah, I must admit, I agree with both of your answers. I think that it is going to change the way that we look at health security. I know that at the National Security College, when we do a lot of research involving government and we, we rank different um, challenges in terms of priority for Australia's national security, biosecurity well before the coronavirus pandemic was always in the top three. Um, people looked at the Hendra virus outbreak and things like this and realised that, that there wasn't great preparation in Australia for health security security in terms of dealing with it with a pandemic or an outbreak. Uh, so it was always there in the mindset, but I don't think it really flowed through in the practice. It's definitely going to th- flow through in the practice of the professionals now, but I also agree with you, Dr. Ether, that we all have very short memories. Mm-hmm. We all like to be lazy and uh, we love the way that life was before. And I think that we're going to have a challenge in reminding society that there is significant risk still out there and it's going to be here for a long time. It's going to, there's going to be pockets of it throughout the world and we're going to have to learn to live with this and change the way that we live if we want to get back to the old normal. Now, we've mentioned the vaccine a couple of times. This is the big thing on everybody's mind. When do you think that we'll see a vaccine rollout? Will it be anytime soon? And how do you think that that kind of rollout of a vaccine is going to happen in the country and also regionally? It all looks promising. They've had trials, but it's just we're not going to know. And realistically, I'm going to go back to my other point. It is about prevention, you know, and at this stage, that's all we can do. Um Even if we do get a vaccine, do we know what it's going to look like? Is it going to be something that's going to be lifelong? Is it going to require more than one dose? Um, Is it going to work for some people? There are so many questions to go with that. So uh, the answer to that question is really no. However, how we're going to roll it out through Australia is also going to depend on all those factors. You know, do we start off with our vulnerable groups, our frontline workers? Um, How are we going to deliver it? There's going to be, um, you know, the policy may come from the federal government, but then the actual delivery will have to be state and territory. It'll be their priorities. Yeah, and how many vaccines um, does an individual need? Are they going to be uh, people that we can't give it to, pregnant women, for example? Yeah, so there's multiple factors that need to be considered in that, and I'm sure there's a lot of planning happening with that. Um, and just, I guess, just to add, because we've been asked this question as well about what about treatment, antiviral medication. There is antiviral medication out there, maybe not specific for COVID-19. But the problem with even developing antiviral medication is that all antiviral medication usually only works between um, bit within 48 hours of getting a virus and maximum 72 hours. So if you have asymptomatic people, you've lost your window of opportunity. So vaccine is probably the best bet that we have. But in the meanwhile, as we need to minimise prevent, control, but at the same time, look at how we're going to live life normally as well. So it's almost a matter of a discipline in some ways. I think there's a lot going on around the vaccines that that aren't clearly understood by the public. Um, 
you know, and Geith has touched on a number of these. As I understand it, there is no vaccination testing being done on children or the elderly. They're focused on that middle cohort. So if we get a vaccine, they, they won't be part of that. Um, uh, at the moment, with the two vaccines that Australia's gone and targeted, if they come off, both require two shots. Um, not everybody as great as going back for that second shot. Um, the Australian government, I think, is targeting 95% of people would get a vaccine. That seems very high if you have a look at the data. There's a lot of people that wouldn't do it. So maybe it's not that high. Maybe it's 80%. Then you have to look at what the effectivity is. And the WHO says that it doesn't class a vaccine as effective unless it's above 50%. So that means that if it was 50%, even though you've been vaccinated for half of the people, it wouldn't work. And then the final piece, again, that Keith had touched on is how long is it effective for? Is it three years, two years? At the moment, they're saying it may only be months. So if we now think that we've got the middle section of the population, only some of them will get it, some of them won't get the second vaccine, and it might only last for months, is that enough to reopen all the economy? And how do we build around it? Then you've got to produce enough to be able to do it. And we, we've seen recently the government has committed to work with CSL, but that's months away to get that up and running and then run out a quick 20 million shots of vaccine and then deliver them around the country um, is, is a huge health logistics issue. So I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying there's an, as Geith said, there's a huge amount of planning being done, but, but this is not something that is typically rolled out in this fashion. Dr. Geith, is there some kind of magical number of how many people that could get the vaccine, which would get us to a herd immunity level? They usually talk about 80%, um, uh, but that is the entire population. Uh, but if we're going to exclude, you know, the elderly, and children. Children we're excluding because they seem to have, you know, some sort of natural immunity and the elderly because we're just too scared to, you know, trial something on a vulnerable population. It's going to affect that herd immunity number. So what do you do? How do you manage that? So for this particular vaccine as well, it's going to be interesting to see what you would consider to be herd immunity to then minimise transmission and the infection rates. So that's a really good question as well. And so do we actually then talk about herd immunity within a certain population, within certain countries, etc., or do we talk about it saying it has to be mandatory for certain people because you're going to put, like say, for example, the flu vaccine, if you're going into an aged care facility, you're expected to have it. You know, So do we put in some regulation into it? Um, so I think it has to be like a combination of strategies to achieve some level of herd immunity. Mm, well, if, if the complexity of dealing with a pandemic or, or a, a viral outbreak like this wasn't already apparent to us, that discussion really has brought it home. So we're going to take a quick break here for a minute on the National Security Podcast and we'll be back soon to hear more from Glenn Keyes and Dr. I, Dr. Geetha Isaac. So we're going to. Would you like me to call you in? Oh, you might and as we, well. <laughs> so we're going to take a break on the podcast now, and we'll be back soon with Glenn Keyes and Dr. Geetha Isaac Tower. That was awesome. <laughs> we'll be back soon on the National Security Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So as I mentioned in the introduction, we are taking a couple of episodes to look at the role that private industry plays in national security. Now, before my inbox is clogged up by the policy wonks telling me that I'm using the term public-private partnership interchangeably with the concept of contracting, I know and I get it. However, there's a lot of literature out there that shows that the idea of PPP is very much an evolving concept, and that's precisely the point of us recording these episodes. So let's roll on with this discussion about public-private partnerships and the kind of contributions that private industry gives and can give to national security. So let's, let's start broad. What role does private industry have in national security? I think uh, private industry has a really critical role in uh, in national security, and I think it has to be seen, though, in a context of being collaborative. So we can't expect national industry to go away and do its own thing. Market forces are usually good, but not always. And so government needs to set what the policy is going to be, what defines natural in- national interest, and then it needs to get all the players to the table. And we need to be able to bring in industry, community, government, and we need to come together collaboratively to work out how best to answer that. Because there are some things that industry can do very quickly, very promptly, usually very cost-effectively that will contribute to the national interest. But if they're not sure where that direction is, then it's going to fail. So that's when you need government to sit back and have clarity around national interest and go, it would be great for us if as a country we could do X. And mm, I think if we're going to define policy, that looks like us. Government will go do that. And if we want to deliver on these things, industry, can you do it? The critical piece that comes with this is you need to know what you're asking for. And so I think where there have been failings in the past on both areas that you're going to get attacked by your policy wonks on, public-private partnerships and contracting, it's typically around poor contracting. If you are not clear what your statement of work is when you go in and industry and government thinks you're after different things and you don't check those along the way to check that the milestones and the deliverables are right, then it's going to be a fail. But that doesn't mean that industry can't be involved in national uh, security interests. It means that you must know what you're asking for and you've got to know how to measure it as you go. I actually find that interesting because in health, take Australia, for example, a lot of health services are provided both publicly and privately. So there's already that partnership over there. I think it's that we don't recognise it and we don't use it to our benefit for health security. And one key area is every health provider you go to, you go to the hospital, it could be a public hospital, it could be a private hospital, you go to the GP, that's private sector, really, subsidised by um, the government, but you'll have one medical record at the GP, you'll have one medical record in the hospital, you'll have one medical record at the specialist. Now, realistically, if we had some way of having a common record, which is quite, it's not difficult to do, and think about the amount of health security you could have just by using the systems we already have in place, but 
accepting it and making it function. So realistically, in the health sector, we do have the mechanisms to have a really good public-private partnership. It's how we harness it and how we utilise it. So you do that in primary health care. You do that in secondary health care. You do it, you know, in palliative care. So why aren't we utilising it for the purposes of health security? Are, are, are there any particular friction points when you're dealing with government in terms of crisis management like you have been? Any areas that you would point out and say, if we make improvements here, we're going to make leaps and bounds in joining up the government and private industry in the national security area? Uh, well, I think we've seen both friction points and how they've been addressed done during this period better than probably anywhere in the world. And I think that's happened because of National Cabinet. And then at a level below it, the, to be honest, the vast majority of Australians didn't see the engagement of the departments. Department secretaries would be lucky to have met once a week, maybe once a month previous to COVID. Now they were meeting every day, several times a day. Um you know, the boundary writing that would typically go on to make sure that this department protected its area and it was not going to get influenced by those areas there, that all went out the window. Suddenly you had groups sitting down saying, oh, I'm from Department X, but I'm over here working in this other department because they needed a hand to understand how we did things. Suddenly all of the secrets that each department had on how they went, they went out the window and it started from the top down. And I think, quite honestly, we, we had a government, and, and by a government, I'm not picking a colour of government, I'm talking at a federal and a state level, and I'm talking in their oppositions as well, who said how we dealt with bushfires was actually pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And what, if we had that happen again, what would we do? So they wrote up a national cabinet plan. They didn't even need to dust it off. The ink was barely dry when COVID hit, and they could pull that out and go, that's what we're going to do. Now, COVID's meant that a lot of our world news has dropped off. But if you have a look around the world, there are lots of other jurisdictions similar to us. So large federated bodies, whether it's state, provinces, regencies, districts, whatever, uh, operating independently, their death rates were through the roof. They had different testing methodologies. They had different uh, methodologies for PPE production and procurement. We came up with a national cabinet. And Australia at its best was in the middle of wave one when everybody went, we just have to fix this. The cabinet, did, uh, the national cabinet did it, the federal cabinet did it, and every single department did it. If And we talked about, can we keep it? And it's going to be a struggle. But I actually think the interdepartmental crossover, that was where it was so powerful because that's where departments went, oh, you want to do that? Trust me, I know how we get it through ours. And they made that happen. But in sort of 30 years worth of contracting before that, I've never seen that happen. And that's where those friction points normally are. The moment you want to move across departments to, or across jurisdictions from state to federal, we grind to a halt. And that's what we've got to focus on. If we want health security to work properly going forward, we need to say, all right, we're all going to put aside our petty differences. We're going to argue to get this right. We're going to be very clear because I think uh, you know, if we sit down in the cold, hard light of day in the next year or two and we look at those times where things didn't work well, 
Ruby Princess, um, St Basil's, I think that's where we'll see the fracture lines between state and federal responsibilities, not because people were bad. People were good. People were incredibly committed. But the fracture lines had been papered over, and when the stress came, that's where they broke, and we had trouble joining those dots. Now, things like the uh, response committee that's been stood up in Victoria, that's helped join all of those, knit them together really well, and we see the results of that happening. We've seen it in New South Wales, where even though they had people from Victoria, they were able to lock that down in a very, very coordinated way. That coordination, that lack of boundary riding, that lack of stovepiping, that's what's going to protect us from a health security way going forward. Given that the National Security College, part of our remit is to break down the siloed approach to national security policy making and get a whole of government approach, this is music to our ears, let me tell you. <laughs> Dr. Gether, do you have any thoughts on this issue? There is a group that um, is the Australian Health Protection Committee. So that has representation from all states and territories, and a common theme is how do we deal with a particular health problem affecting everybody. Um, so the structure and everything is in place. Um, however, what happens in states and territories sometimes can vary in terms of response. So it it is really important to say, for example, the contact tracing um, uh, strategy can be different from uh, for different states and territories. So one of the things that I think we've learned from this or we have learned from this is where can we have a common approach and um, and where we shouldn't have a common approach. Um, so there may be different ways to contact trace in remote communities as opposed to within an urban setting Um and and I think that goes back to Glenn's point about, you know, we really need to work together as with one plan as a federation and have some sort of common structure, but then be able to adapt um, where we need to as well. And I think that ne- those two bits, sometimes we don't have a good connect and, and we, we're, just, we're just learning as we keep going. I heard a uh, great statement from a minister who was talking about liaising with states. And they said, uh, you know, every single state I spoke to said they were comfortable to change as long as everybody changed to look like them. Them, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and and I think one of the things that I've learned as well is it's really important that you keep in touch with them and work with them. And, and it, it may be an informal network, but it still helps. Glenn, you just mentioned the Ruby Princess and also the issues with uh, retirement home and aged care in Australia. You've had to go on the record a couple of times to uh, clear Aspen's name when you have been pulled into the furor around the response to these issues. You don't get anxious that you're going to be that you're going to be politicised in an area that is essentially politics. How do you how do you keep a private organisation? How do you protect it and put a barrier between that and the politicised response and the blame game that usually goes along with these kind of issues? Uh, look, it is very challenging, and um, and I I wouldn't say I don't get anxious. We do we do get anxious because we've worked very very hard to create um, what we believe is a very solid brand for Aspen. Every single person who works at Aspen carries that brand with them. And so they, they're proud to work at Aspen Medical. They're proud of what we deliver. Um, it is frustrating um, when sometimes someone will take 
you know, particularly news out of context. So talking about, for example, one aged care facility, when we have been in over 170 aged care facilities across the country, supporting states all up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, and it's actually, believe it or not, it's not the politics that are the issue because that suggests that it's one party or another deciding to take swipes at each other. And and we're normally able to reach out to them. We'll have a discussion. We'll explain it. And as much as it may not suit their narrative, they'll go, hmm, okay, I get it. And we'll then have a very open discussion. The thing that we found very frustrating um, is that not all elements of the media are interested in reporting that whole story. And it, look, it's probably a combination of things. I'm certainly not a believer in in the mainstream media generating fake news. I don't believe that at all. I do believe that there's a lack of resources in mainstream media. Um, they're under incredible time pressures to put stuff in. And to be honest, they're under incredible time pressures to get a headline that someone's going to go, I'm not going to read that article. I'm just going to read that title. And so, for example, where we've worked in aged care facilities, uh, we are the last line of defence. So there are five levels of support before we're called in. And yet when we've gone through the media and said, so do you realise the aged care facility has to provide their own staff, then they have to call in casuals, then they had to go to this organisation, this one and this one, and we're actually not meant to be providing aged care support in a metro area. Our contract's meant to cover rural and regional and metro only in the last line of defence, and we get called in. But the media, having been given the names and the contract and the details and pointed to a government website, still go, yeah, but people have heard of Aspen Medical. They haven't heard of those guys, so we'll put you in the header. That is frustrating. And to be honest, I expected better. Australian media has got a strong reputation. We've done some amazing investigative journalism within, as a country and as part of a broader international collective, if you look at things like the Panama Papers, for example. So to have that happen is really frustrating. And But if I had a choice between putting up with that happening or being in those other 160-odd facilities and helping all of the people that are there, that's what we'll do. My father was in an aged care facility for two years until he passed away. My brother has got uh, an early-onset illness and in the age of 58 is in a facility and he's been there now for three years. I am critically aware of the need to help people in aged care facilities. I have a son with an intellectual disability and we support disability accommodation and people as well. If I had the choice to say we'd take a little less heat in the media and not help people or we're going to help all of those people and take a bit of heat in the media, I'm going to go for that option every single time. I just would add that it's very important for us to do the right things. Um, from my point of view, I've had a lot of my team go into the aged care facilities to support infection prevention control, and they're at the front line. So they do worry about how they portray themselves and what they're doing, but at the same time know that they've got to stand up and be there. And so as a group, we collectively try to support them as well. It plays a big role in how we work out in the front line as well. 
Okay, we're getting close to time on this episode, but I do have some questions from some of my colleagues here at the ANU that I would like to ask. The first one comes from Liz West. She's the program manager from the National Security College Cyber Team. This one's directed at you, Dr. Geetha. And this actually goes to the point that you were talking about combined databases and the flow of information within the Australian health system. Did Aspen encounter any barriers to accessing necessary patient, case, stock or other data from government? And if not, were there any structures and agreements put into place in advance that streamlined this data sharing? And are there any lessons learned around access to information to allow partnership to work as efficiently as possible? So a lot of the support that we provided didn't necessarily need um, patient confidential information. And we respect that. We wouldn't ask for any information that we didn't need to be able to support a project. However, we supported um, a lot of, uh, you would have heard about the respiratory clinics that we supported to establish as part of GP clinics. So, of course, there had to be information that was collected to enable somebody to go into the respiratory clinic. So, What we did was work with the government um, to ensure that there was a partnership in in how that information would be collected, who would have access to that information, and and how it would be stored. So realistically, we did not keep any of that information. That information belonged to the patient. It, It belonged to the general practice that the patient went to. But what we did was establish mechanisms by which that information could be collected. We also established established mechanisms by which it could be collated for the practice, but also collated on a broader scale for the department to be able to look at, you know, where the where there are pockets of people actually going to get tested, et cetera, et cetera. So it was all about what was the kind of data, what was the data that we needed to have to support projects and come to an agreement with how we actually kept the data and utilised the data. So realistically, uh, the short answer to that question was um, we really didn't have barriers. It was about working on what was needed and and how we managed it. So I think, um, and and because it was such short timeframes, like we were doing things overnight, this was, you know, like we set up the first respiratory clinic within, I think, three days, five days? Three days. Yeah, three days of... Um, being asked to do that, which included um, data collection, data management, data storage. So uh, I, I would say that we had a really good working relationship and and no barriers. It was about understanding who needed to do what. The next question comes from Dr. Gaetan Bergio. He is the group leader and head of the transgenesis facility here at the ANU, John Curtin School of Medical Research. And it's a very interesting question. And, and I will quote his question here. In the perspective of national security, how far can the public-private partnerships be developed? For example, if research involved reverse engineering of pathogens, will partnership with industry affect our sovereignty and national security? And overall, should private industry play roles such as the active participation in the research of pathogens, providing research infrastructure and influencing related policies? Look, it's a great, uh, great, long and complicated question. So thanks, thanks for that. Um, I think what uh, companies all need to do, you know, people often talk about companies having a value set. Uh, 
knowing what their core beliefs are. I think if we're going to be involved, particularly in health and in national security and the national interest, that the industry involved has to understand who it is and what its values are and how far it's prepared to go and what it's prepared to do. I'm not sure if many of the listeners are familiar with benefit corporations or B Corps. These came out of the US and they were a creation of a type of company that said, hang on, we don't want to just benefit shareholders. We want to benefit shareholders and benefit the community. We want to make a profit and to make a difference. Uh, they actually amended the Corporations Act in 39 states across the US to recognise B Corps as a separate entity. And uh, But to be a B Corp, you have to be audited. We're, we're one of the largest B Corps in Australia. Um, our audit took two years because they didn't just come in and say, you know, well, have you got sustainability and do you do corporate social responsibility? They audit everything. Our sustainability, every single employment contract to ensure, because we employ a lot of people overseas in Africa and the Middle East and and through the Pacific, to check that everybody was getting all of the entitlements that they should do, all the protections were there, uh, inclusion, diversity, everything that related to how we operated as a company. So that gave us a level of of transparency and governance and accountability. That is far higher than most companies. In actual fact, far higher than most not-for-profits. So for us, if someone came in and said, hi, we've got a great working relationship, would you be willing to help us reverse engineer this particular pathogen to be used in area that might be you know, dangerous to people or whatever, it's a pretty clear ethical line that we wouldn't step over. And so we've worked in countries, we work in a range of places around the world where I've had people approach us and go, you know, just to get this through, it's just 50 bucks. They just want that to buy paper to print our license. And you go, yep, it's easy. Go buy a ream of paper. You're not paying $50. They go, but it's not like it's much. We've already spent all of this money to get here. Why wouldn't we do that? And I said, because it's $100 all right? Is $1,000 still okay? I said, once we do that, we've actually completely compromised ourselves. The same would happen with national security. So industry needs to know where it wants to live and what it wants to do, and government needs to understand what it's asking of industry when it does that. And industry that's involved in these areas needs to be open and transparent to do it. So I think I could go to pretty much anyone in Aspen Medical and give them an ethical challenge or a line, and they would understand where they could and couldn't step. Dr. Geether, I know you have some thoughts on this. I'd love to hear them. As an organisation, we are there to provide and support the best good. So um, ethically, this wouldn't support the the best good. So no, I, I, it, it, it's not something that I would support for my team or anyone in the organisation to do. Yeah, great. So I'm going to wrap up with our final question here. This is a question that we ask a lot of our guests here on the podcast, and that's have there been any seminal moments that have changed your career or shaped your career? What was one of those experiences? And this could be a book that you've read, a person that you've met, a movie that you've seen, or or even some artwork that you've appreciated. Has there been anything that has shaped the way that you see the world? I'll start with you, Dr. Geetha. 
one thing for me as a public health physician is um, having to having had to learn and think laterally and broadly because it, health is something that's affected by a multitude of things. It depends on where you live, what you eat, what access you have to things, how much money you have, um, governments, um, media. There's so many things, the community. So I always think of going to um, the James Terrell exhibition with my daughter, who's who's an art curator, and uh, we massively enjoyed it, but for different reasons, because I looked at it completely from, you know, a physics, scientific point of view about how he'd used the angles and the direction of the sun and and the colours and things. And then I was talking with my daughter and, and she completely appreciated it from the point of view of how he'd presented it and his thoughts behind it. That's how we need to work in whether it be health or anywhere, because they we live in a world of different people think differently, people work differently, and there's so many things that influence what the outcome could be. So I think that for me just sort of brought together why I'm in public health and what I need to think about and 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 how I view health in general. That's a fantastic response and a big shout out to our friends at the National Gallery of Australia. That was a great <laughs> exhibition a great there. Exhibition. It really it really was. And Glenn, have, have there been any experiences in your life that has shaped the way you understand the world and has shaped the path of your career? Certainly a couple. I think very first one was my parents. Uh, both my mum and dad uh, ran their own business. We actually lived above the shop. So we were all intimately involved in the business. I'm old enough to remember that when businesses weren't allowed to operate after Saturday lunch because that was the weekend. So that was our time off. But mum and dad worked together really collaboratively. And I didn't get it until really much, much later in life that there was a very, very gender-balanced relationship that they had. Mum did the books. Mum would do the ordering. Uh, We had a wool gift and toy shop at night after dinner. Dad would go down. We had a knitting machine. He'd do all the cuffs and collars uh, and buttonholes on the machine. Um, If it was Dad cooking dinner or Mum, it didn't didn't really matter. The roles were mixed because – they were just delivering outcomes. And and to me, I expected that. I just saw that. And so um, I, I think I was blessed with seeing gender equity and gender balance before a time I've, of what I even understood that. I think the next one was uh, I was incredibly lucky to be in the military for 15 years. And um, I think that commitment to service uh, is is something that, that is often forgotten. We see, you know, we bag our politicians and, and they're easy, easy meat. But, you know, I've been asked, you know, have you ever thought of going into politics? You've got to be joking. No one appreciates what you do. It's an incredibly difficult job. It's it's difficult to get into the role where you can create legislation and make change. They are committing a service. They are serving us. Sure, there's a you know, there's a whole other reasons that motivate us, but the service that we give is fantastic. And and what that's what I learned out of the military is that ability to serve others. There is nothing better. And then the final thing is I mentioned that uh, I've got three children and and uh, one of our children um, has uh, intellectual disability, has Down syndrome. And uh, he just had his birthday, he's 27 now. Uh, you know, he 
works four days a week. He goes out. He's got a very, very active life. Huge fan of the Raiders. You know, he's just, he's he has a normal life. What it taught me was, first up, you know, like he could kick my butt absolutely with with any hand-eye coordination, you know, play tennis or whatever. He's just great. His skill base is way up here on on those. And it really taught me that, that we all live on different bell curves for lots of different activities. And I, I look at, at what I can do. I've just been lucky in so many aspects of my life. And 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 what I've learned from Aaron and all of his friends and the rest of the disability community is we are all lucky in so many ways. What we can contribute back in service is really, really critical, and we should do that. And I can tell you, every day you do it, you feel a bit better. That's a fantastic response. I have actually met your son, and he's part of the time. He is a very <laughs> impressive young adult, and you deserve to be proud of him. Glenn Keyes, Dr. Gaither, thank you very much for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. And a big thanks to Dr. Geetha and Glenn for coming on the National Security Podcast. I think that discussions around COVID-19 and pandemic response and crisis management are going to be issues that we'll be talking about for the rest of my career in national security at least. If you have any thoughts on this episode and the subject matter that we've addressed within it, which is also public-private partnerships in national security, you can join the discussion by hitting us up on Twitter. You can use at Apps Policy Forum, or you can speak to me directly at NatSecPod. You can join the Policy Forum Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod. You can go old school and drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. Of course, we really appreciate it when you drop us a rating or any feedback on whatever platform you pod with. We take all of that feedback seriously and we really appreciate suggestions on what we might talk about in future podcasts. And we will be back with you soon, not only with more of our discussion on public-private partnerships in national security, but we will be continuing the National Security College 10th Anniversary event series where we host speeches or get national security leaders into the studio to talk about their experiences and the current challenges that Australia faces in national security. So thanks very much for listening to today's episode and we'll be back to speak to you soon on the National Security Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.